So perhaps somewhat reminiscent of someone that you see at least occasionally on your television screens. You see me and think, time for the old guy to get on with it. He doesn't know what's going on or where he belongs. <laughs> Not always sure. I know where you belong, though, and that is at Hebrews chapter 13, which I trust you can open before you. And let's go to prayer, as I now have less time than I thought. Our Lord, we are very aware that it is important what we believe. It is important what we affirm, not simply believe internally, but what we are willing to stand up and say that we believe. Lord, it is also very abundantly clear that it is important how we live what we believe. And thus, as we come now to the last chapter of this book, we have spent many, many months in learning much from you Now before it's over, and we must linger here a while, we focus on living before you in accordance with that which we believe. So we ask you to guide us, to speak to us, convict us, show us the way in which you would have us to act, to live. And may we walk in that way for your glory in all things, we pray. In Christ. Amen. So having told you to turn to Hebrews 13, I start by saying in the book of Romans, especially, but really in many of the letters, the Apostle Paul presents a lengthy amount of doctrinal material, teaching material, followed in many of his letters by a few chapters or a section of practical duties. Well, the book of Hebrews, as I alluded to in prayer, has a lengthy amount of doctrinal material followed by a brief, in this case, segment of practical duties here in chapter 13. One might almost say, here is another reason that suggests to us the notion that perhaps the letter to the Hebrews is Pauline, written by Paul. So similar, is it, in in, uh, organization to so many of his letters. If we are walking by faith and not by sight, various evidences of our faith should appear in our lives. And that's highlighted here in Hebrews 13. There are behaviors, there are attitudes that should follow and be exhibited in the lives of those who have understood the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who have committed themselves by faith to Christ as their Lord and Savior. All Christians, all of us who claim the name of Christ, have the serious responsibility to live upright, moral, godly lives to the glory of God. One reason certainly is so that unbelievers never have an obvious reason for criticizing Christ and Christianity by the way in which we live. The way in which we live is a reflection on our Lord. The well-known agnostic or atheist, and it wasn't always clear which he was, he floated back and forth, British philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote a very famous essay entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. His basic argument against Christianity was the rotten lives of so many professing Christians. 
He said, and I quote, I think there are many good points upon which I agree with Christ. A great, and he is not a believer. But he said, I believe there are many good points upon which I agree with Christ a great deal more than many professing Christians. I do not know that I can go all the way with him, with Jesus. He certainly didn't. But I could go with him much further than most professing Christians can. I think Russell was wrong, but what he was getting at was he felt that there are many moral and ethical issues in which his life exhibited more Christ-likeness or that he lived more consistently with God's standards of behavior than many Christians do. I think we've seen this phenomenon here at Grace Evangelical Free Church. Not if one digs into the internal spiritual nature of what's going on, but I think at least at the surface, we have experienced this phenomena here at our church. Those who have an association, who have had an association with our congregation, or those who have perhaps attended here in the midst of our congregation, sometimes for years as non-believers in Christ, but they have at least outwardly seemed to practice an obedience to the commands of God to a higher degree than many of us who have given clear testimony of our faith in Christ. It has ever been the case that the world, the non-Christians in our world, take their notion of God, most of all, from those who say that they belong to, to God's family. Non-believers read us much more than they read the Bible. They see us wherein they don't hear or see, even in a spiritual sense, Jesus Christ. So our Lord commanded of his followers, Jesus himself said, let your light Shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine before, not just before other believers, although that's important, but let it shine before all of humanity that they may see your good works. They may see how you live and glorify the Father. Now, this Matthew 5, verse 16 is where Jesus is recorded to have said that. This does not mean... Surely we understand. We are not to parade our righteousness seeking the attention of others that we might win praise for ourselves as a result. It certainly doesn't mean that. But we are to live in obedience to God's word in such a way that he gets credit as the one who has enabled us and who works through us. And as a result... Those who don't know him will be drawn to faith in him. Our actual living out of God's truth in submission to him is not only, and it is this, critical evidence that we are in fact the Christians that we say we are. It is also, or it also has an enormous gospel impact on those who know us, on those who observe us, and yet are themselves outside the faith. So, here in Hebrews 13, we come to a number of practical instructions for faithful living that should, they don't always, but they should flow forth from anyone who is claiming to be a follower of Christ. Verse 1. Let love of brethren, let love of the brethren continue. Christianity is the family, the brethren, that's not male or female, it's all. Christianity is the family of God. The church is to be a community 
that is characterized by family love. Evangelism, critically important. A calling upon all who believe, but not the first calling. Building congregations is in many ways very important. A calling, but again, not the first calling. The first calling, I submit, is rooted in the great commandments to first love God with all or with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength. And flowing from that, we are to love our neighbor, which certainly includes fellow believers. We are to love our neighbor as and before ourselves. Doesn't mean we don't love ourselves in a properly understood sense, but first, love our neighbor as and before ourselves. We are certainly to show love as, as an essential part of our witness. If we are not showing love, we are doing damage to our witness. But even more importantly, we are to show love because God is love and we are called to God-likeness in this life, in this world. Therefore, the deepest kind of fellowship is not based on race, it's not based on geography, it's not based on blood, it's not based on shared interests. The deepest kind of fellowship is based on the spiritual life that we have and that we share in Christ, which is exhibited, which should be exhibited by the love of believers for one another. That should stand out. The song that we sang so many, many years ago in Young Life, they will know us by our love. We sang it, did we live it? That must, that should stand out. A church fellowship that is based on anything other, that is rooted in, that is based on, at the fundamental, on anything other than our shared love for Christ and for one another, such a fellowship simply will not last. Amen. The Greek word for love, I often don't tell you what the Greek word is, but it is kind of important here. The Greek word for love here in verse 1 is Philadelphia. That's the way we'd say it in English. That means brotherly love, brethren love. It is the love of close Friendship. It is not erotic love. It is not God's self-sacrificial love, but it is the love of close friendship. C.S. Lewis drew a helpful distinction between the love that lovers share and the love which brethren or friends or those in fellowship together share. He said, Lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever about their friendship. They don't just sit consumed with talking about how much they are friends and how much they love one another as friends. Lovers, said Lewis, are normally face to face, absorbed in each other. Friends side by side absorbed in some common interest. Or we should say, absorbed in the same person of Christ. We may differ with one another over all sorts of matters of the Christian faith. We may have differing opinions. We may have differing ideas over all sorts. Not over all matters. There are matters that are so fundamental, so important, that we must be in agreement if we are to be truly in Christ properly. But there are lots and lots of things where we may differ with one another. And yet, for Christ's sake, we are called to work together in love and in appreciation for one another in the cause of the gospel. 
And let me just pause here and say, friends, I think you here at Grace exhibit that quality very well. So now I move on to verse 2. I have nothing further to exhort you about. I think you're doing that fairly well. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. So love, that first verse, is not real if it is not expressed in concrete actions. Clearly, the scope of our family love, our brethren love, our brotherly love, is to be broad when you look at verse 2. It is to extend well beyond the congregational fellowship that we share. It doesn't mean that it doesn't include that. It doesn't mean that we ought not show hospitality to one another. Oh, we very much should, but it should extend far beyond that to those who are outside. This same thing Jesus taught pointedly in his parable of the Good Samaritan. A Pharisee is asking Christ, who is my neighbor? And Jesus shows him in that parable that his neighbor is anyone in need. And thus we must show mercy to others. We must show love to others, even and perhaps in some ways, especially to those who are outside of Christ because of the mercy and love that Christ and God has shown to us. That same principle animates the call to hospitality here in verse 2 of Hebrews 13. The main idea in hospitality is bringing people into our homes. So let me ask, how many people can describe the inside of your home. The ancient world, as you may know, did not have holiday inns, did not have motel sixes. The inns that were available for travelers in the ancient world, certainly in the first century in the Near East, were filthy, were ruinously expensive were of low repute, meaning they were just generally unsafe places to be. Most travelers, therefore, preferred to, whenever they could, to stay in private homes. So the, pro- the, 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 the practice rather, of hospitality was critical. The same need does not generally exist today, especially in America. And many people, perhaps as a result of the lack of that same need or the degree of that same need, never open their homes to others. But the practice of hospitality is not just important when the public ends of a society for travelers are disreputable or even dangerous. The practice of hospitality is is important nonetheless. We should certainly, we should certainly invite one another over for fellowship, but we should make a point of welcoming outsiders, non-believers indeed, into our homes, a priority which Deb Liston has reminded us for years ought to be ours. We should certainly be as welcoming, shouldn't we? We should certainly be as welcoming as Muslims and Mormons are. Both of those groups put a premium on hospitality. Our homes are hopefully places where the neighborhood kids like to come. Your impact on those who don't know Christ may be directly proportional to how open your home is. Hospitality should be a mark of all Christians. Love should certainly be a mark of all Christians. Hospitality in a similar way. It should be a basic characteristic, not incidental, not an optional practice. It is, after all, in each other's homes where we really get to know one another. Therefore, we must will 
or choose to be hospitable. It's a command. March 1990, let me remind you, March 1990 comes shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall in November of 1989. So it, it, just a very few months later, March 1990, Clark and Ann Petticord, who were representatives with crew, well, it wasn't called that back then, just Campus Crusade for Christ, in Germany, they made the following report in a personal letter. They lived there, and they made this following report. Last week, the former communist dictator, Eric Honecker, was released from the hospital where he had been undergoing treatment for cancer. There is probably, remember, you've got to think, 1990. There is probably no single person in all of East Germany that is more despised and hated than he. He has been stripped of all of his offices and even his own Communist Party has kicked him out. He was booted out of the villa he was living in. The new government refused to provide him and his wife accommodation. They stood, in essence, he, he writes on, homeless on the street. And it was Christians who stepped in. Pastor Yui Holmer who is in charge of a Christian health center north of Berlin, was asked by church leaders if he would be willing to take Honecker in. Pastor Holmer and his family decided that it would be wrong to give away a room in the center that they ran that would be used for needy people or to give away an apartment that staff needed. Instead, they took the former dictator and his wife into their own home. It must have been strange, a strange scene, when the old couple arrived. The former absolute ruler of the country was being sheltered by one of the Christians whom he and his wife had despised and persecuted. In East Germany, there is a great deal of hate toward the former regime and especially toward Honecker and his wife Margot, who had ruled the educational system there for 26 years with an iron hand. She had made sure that very few Christian children were able to go on for higher education. He writes on, there are 10 children in the Homer family. And eight of them had applied for further education in the course of the past years. All eight had been refused a place at college precisely because they were Christians. In spite of the fact that they all had good or excellent grades in school, Pastor Homer was asked why would he and his family, why would they open their door to such detestable people? And Pastor Homer spoke very clearly. Our Lord challenged us to follow him and to take in all who are weary and heavy laden, both in soul and in body. Who apart from the grace of God and the example of Christ and the instruction of God's word would do such a thing as the Homers did. Jesus didn't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, and we are to be like him. Our struggle and difficulty in loving others, properly loving others, is that we are very often too wrapped up in ourselves. Now it also says, and I'm not going to skip over it, in practicing hospitality, some have entertained angels without knowing it. We minister to others, we should minister to others, out of love, because of need, not because of any consequences that we are able to foresee. We, in other words, don't show hospitality this isn't the right motivation. We don't show hospitality because we think we might therefore entertain an angel. The point here is 
that we can never know how important or how far-reaching a simple act of helpfulness or hospitality may be. In Genesis 18, of course, rooted in this statement, Abraham entertained three angelic visitors, one of whom was in all likelihood the Lord Jesus himself. But in Abraham's case, he, of course, knew the supernatural nature of his visitors. That's made aware to us in the text. Now, the word angels may simply refer to human messengers from God. They don't have to be angelic at all. This term can be referred to human messengers from God as we find it used in James chapter 2 and verse 25, which speaks about Rahab the harlot receiving the Jewish spies, clearly just human beings, whom were to her, however, God's special messengers. We could receive a visit from the Lord via an angel in human form. That has perhaps happened to some of us, and we had no idea when and the circumstances in which it did happen. We could receive a visit from our Lord via a human being and not be aware that the visitor is a special emissary from our Lord fulfilling a special mission. Any stranger or guest in our home could turn out to be a messenger of blessing, of God's blessing to us. Presumably, if merely a human messenger, that human messenger may not even be fully aware of the significance of his or her visit to us. The point again would be, usually... There is a lot more to the people that we meet than meets the eye. It is, of course, possible, even when you sit in church, that the person next to you or the person somewhere close to you may really be an angel. That's possible. Maybe more so in a much larger church. You don't know everyone. But it's possible. But he or she, those who sit next to us or close to us, are likely someone who is even more wonderful than an angel. There beside you or very near to you is probably, or in many cases, a saint of God in light. All across the sanctuary are those who are destined to serve as priests and kings in the very presence of the living God. Who are now being prepared for their glorious raiment and service. To meet an actual angel would, I think most of us would agree, would be wonderful. But let us remember that in church are those whom angels are sent out to serve and who will inherit salvation, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. There is a work going on in their lives that angels wonder at and rejoice to see. Surely, therefore, we would be blessed if we showed them hospitality. Again, C.S. Lewis in his essay, in this case, The Weight of Glory, spoke about what an extraordinary thing it is to live among those whose eternal destinies are being worked out. Now, he said it this way. The dullest and most uninteresting person that you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, meaning if you could see now what that person that you encounter now is destined to become, you would perhaps be strongly tempted to worship 
or else said Lewis that person that you see now may be a horror and a corruption such as you now meet if at all only in a nightmare and then he made one of his most significant statements there are no ordinary people you have never talked to a mere mortal it is immortals that we joke with that we work with that we marry that we snub that we exploit it is immortals immortal horrors or everlasting splendors you never really know the destiny of those you meet in the present but what you do know is that being hospitable showing them love is a powerful thing that you are to do for them and done not in that self gratifying so-called love of the world not in the look what I'm doing for you and and therefore what I ought to gain from you but we ought to show that love in hospitality with the self-sacrificing love of Christ that the Holy Spirit has empowered you if you are a believer in Jesus to display and to give if you and I will only choose to do so verse 3 remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are in the body you know that there are various Eastern religions that are escapist spirituality to them or for them is believing that one can transcend the real world of pain and suffering and hardship and escape to a, a higher reality where pain and suffering and hardship don't exist in this world Christianity accepts reality life is hard as my father used to say life is hard and then we die it is often unpleasant is life it is often unfair but God is greater than the trials that we face he will see us through he will enable us to be effective witnesses in hardship if we will be faithful in the first century it was not unusual for Christians to be imprisoned for their faith and in some parts of our world today it is not at all unusual for Christians to be imprisoned because of their faith the emphasis in this verse is on Christians it's on members of the body of Christ who are in prison to identify with them is often dangerous in many parts of our world certainly was in the first century but Christian love demanded ministry to them on the part of those who identified with and said they were followers of Christ to minister to a Christian prisoner in the name of Christ is indeed to minister to Christ himself Matthew chapter 25 verses 36 and 40 of course it's a good thing to visit all prisoners thank the Lord for Chuck Colson's prison fellowship the prison ministry that he founded after he was in prison himself some of us here at Grace years ago were involved in a prison ministry called Man to Man. We were made aware of this ministry by a lady that lived next door to Mary Pat and I, Ruth Schwartz, Aunt Ruthie. I was involved with a prisoner who was living on the farm and I spent years in communication with him when he was in prison and afterward. I sought to do that as a way of reaching him for Christ still however Hebrews 13 and verse 3 is focused on loving and ministering to fellow believers who are imprisoned at minimum we should pray for Christians around the world who are tortured and imprisoned for their faith and we should speak up for those who are suffering many people are imprisoned by godless and evil regimes and we should support efforts political social economic military 
that are aimed at promoting freedom and ending injustice. Verse 4. When I initially considered preaching today, I thought I would go to verse 8. And then I got to verse 4 and said, this isn't going to happen. Verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Why bother with this text? Pastor Eddie already preached a message last week on elements here. But that's the point. Elements here, not all of what is here in this passage, in this context. The home is the first place where Christian love should be practiced. A Christian family begins with a Christian marriage that has something to do with the marriage bed. The Christian family begins with a Christian marriage in the will of God. A rightly rooted Christian family is rooted in a rightly brought together Christian marriage according to the word of God in the will of God. A commitment to honoring marriage, a commitment to purity. These things are basic. Sex outside of marriage is wrong and it is destructive. Sex within the protective bonds of marriage can be enriching and glorifying to God. Doesn't mean it always is, but it can be, certainly. And we are called to radical purity. The first readers of Hebrews were in a position similar to ours. They lived in a depraved society. Not that they weren't sinners themselves, just as we are. But a depraved society awash in sexual perversion and indulgence. It has always been the mark of Christian purity that we should be dramatically different from the non-believing culture in just this area of sex and marriage. We live in a sex-focused, sexually indulgent, sex-saturated society. Sexual sins are paraded as entertainment in movies and on television. The nearest thing to heaven on earth may be a dedicated Christian home rooted in a solid, committed Christian marriage, respecting God's will and God's norms in front of ours. Marriage is honorable, highly valued, costly, if it is seen rightly as our Lord instructs us. Marriage is necessary to a healthy society. Not that everyone is to get married. It's not God's will for everyone. But it is nonetheless necessary to a healthy society. So let it be highly prized among us. And thus how awful is it that in the church we find so much adultery and divorce. And as I say that, it doesn't mean that all divorce is wrong. There is legitimate, allowed, biblical divorce. Nevertheless, it is awful that in the church there is so much adultery and divorce for unbiblical reasons, which are violations of marriage, and there is within the church such a willingness in many quarters to sanction Lesbianism, homosexuality, transgenderism, which are not merely violations, but are outright attacks against the sexual order that God has anchored marriage in. And that it is so awful that we seem, even in the church, but certainly in culture to rapidly move from one ungodly thing to another. It was not long ago that homosexuality was viewed as shameful. It was viewed as an unnatural evil as God's word makes clear that it is. But today it's often viewed as something not terribly to be concerned about especially when our society has moved on to the blight of gender confusion. 
And indeed, even heterosexual fornication and adultery, which used to be viewed as very wrong and evil, are now seen as normal, expected, commonplace, such that these things no longer even raise eyebrows. Sadly, our society is learning what so many previous societies, civilizations have learned. We don't really break God's laws. That's heresy. We don't, we got to have the full statement. We don't really break God's laws. They break us. When a society ignores what God says about the institutions that he has established, like marriage, the costs are enormous. Fornication is a violation of God's standards by unmarried people. Adultery is a violation of God's standards by married people. God judges those who engage in lifestyles of fornication and adultery without repentance. Not only approving of it themselves, but recommending it to others. God judges human beings for all manner of sins. And we are guilty of all manner of sins ourselves. We're not to be proud as though we are somehow way better than the world. God judges all manner of sins. Sexual sins are not in some special category worse than so many others. But over the course of my lifetime, our society's view of sexual sinfulness has dramatically shifted. We decide who we are. We decide what we will do sexually with whomever or with whomevers in whatever way we please. It is all about us. It is all about our own gratification, however indulgent. There is virtually no category at all of what is understood and agreed upon collectively to be perverted and evil, much less just inappropriate. Today, the prevailing notion is that anything and everything is just fine as long as it is loving. And there is such a perversion of what true love is. It's all about how we feel and what we choose and what we want. It is no longer about submission to God and a desire for another's best in accordance with God's word. It is no longer about self-sacrifice and self-denial as Jesus exhibited them on the cross in the greatest act of love in history. There are no restraints, no moral boundaries, nothing it seems that even gives anyone some level of pause and concern. Those who would oppose what anyone wishes to do or what anyone wishes to declare themselves to be are condemned as intolerant and judgmental and evil. No matter the destruction of the common good, no matter the destruction of personal lives, that results. But be warned, verse 4, biblically identified immorality and debauchery will be judged. God's Apostle Paul strongly denounced such things. I think it's the Apostle Paul denouncing it here, but he certainly denounced such things elsewhere. He wrote, I warn you, just as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, Galatians 5 and 21. Not those who have ever committed such things, but those who go on practicing such things without repentance will be judged and will not inherit the kingdom of God. God is judging even now the sexual immorality, the wantonness of our society, as well as the supposedly Christian churches that espouse and tolerate the same. 
And he judges us when we personally turn a blind eye to these things or engage in them ourselves. And hear this. Engage in such things ourselves in the impurity of our minds. Not just in our acts. Unless we are willing to be different at precisely this point of our society's enormous depravity, we cannot expect that our testimony should be taken seriously. And our own profession of faith is brought into question. We may not be able to reverse the destructive ideas or the destructive practices of our society with its doors wide open to promiscuity and perversion, but we can name it for what it is, and we can oppose it, albeit such opposition is seen as intolerant by so many today. This is precisely why the voice of faithful witness must not be allowed to be silenced because we have come to fear man more than we fear God. We can also attend to our own marriages and our own personal sexual lives and set an example of purity and sanctity and faithfulness in accordance with God's word as so clearly set forth in in his word, in accordance, I'm sorry, with his will is what I meant to say. So, we must honor marriage. As God sets it out, we must uphold the institution of marriage and the actual marriages among us. Marriage was the first institution established by God and it is the basic building block of the church and of society. Perhaps there is no better gauge today of the spiritual health of a congregation than the health of its marriages. Husbands and wives hold a precious trust before the Lord and the church. And one of the great needs of our time is an example of strong and godly marriages to encourage those who have perhaps never seen true love and to provide them with a model. One of the great witnesses of our age is Christian couples who faithfully meet the struggles of marriage and every marriage involves struggle. We are all imperfect. We all fall short. But as the great witness of our time are those who meet the struggles of marriage with the grace and the power of God. And not because we are perfect, but what is needed are men and women who pursue God's holiness in this area with all of their hearts, repenting along the way whenever they fall short. And pointing all to Jesus, in whom is found real love, real forgiveness, real restoration, and real goodness no matter what path you may have walked in these things, no matter where you may have fallen short in these things, you can be part of the witness of God to others by pursuing them rightly now. And along with that, along with all that married Christians can be and can contribute, is the Astonishing witness as our world now in particular disparages it of Christian singles who keep the marriage bed pure and undefiled through self-control and godly restraint. God is honored when married couples honor the vows they made to him and when all Christians honor marriage. 
In a time of gender confusion and outright rejection of God's good design for marriage and sex, one of the most important ways in which we who love Christ can love one another and can love the world is to stand up for and speak for and be committed in our actions to what God has established and ordained and desires and commands in regard to marriage and family and the one flesh union of one man and one woman who exclusively and permanently in this life share the marriage bed to glorify God and carry out his will and do so with all of our God-given minds and hearts and strength. Let's pray. It is a high calling. It is a, an impossible calling for us in our humanness. But you, Lord, for we who have believed in you dwell within us by your spirit and enable us to do magnificent things in spite of our sins and failures which are only too evident to us. Lord, may you be seen in the way in which we choose to pursue you in the matter of marriage, family, sexual relations, all of it, in submission to your word, in submission to your lordship, that you may be known and believed in, in all things, in Christ we pray. Amen. Rise, if you will, for the benediction. May you not just hear these things, but may you go forth and practice these things by the grace of God and for his glory. Depart in his peace. Amen.